In 2017, Laura Kipnis published a book called Unwanted Advances. Its subtitle, Sexual Paranoia, Comes to Campus. And its front cover, a bold red, emblazoned with the quote, If this is feminism, it's feminism hijacked by melodrama. No! Kipnis's target in the book was the Title IX provisions introduced in universities across the United States. These gave powers to universities to prosecute members of the university community accused of sexual harassment or assault on campus, and to do so without any semblance of a fair trial. No! Part of what Kipnis argued in the book was that the norms surrounding sexual activity need to change, and that this change must involve both men and women. She talks in the book about universities taking measures to tackle the fact that women are socialised to be passive, exploring ideas like self-defence classes for new undergraduates and women practising saying no loudly and clearly. No! Kipnis's book attracted a major backlash. Feminists and other commentators argued that she was engaged in a form of victim-blaming in which she put the responsibility for harassment and assault on women, typically its victims, rather than on men, its perpetrators and beneficiaries. And, they argued, responsibility belongs squarely with the men. You're listening to Dialogues. This week on Dialogues, we're talking to Renee Bollinger of the Australian National University about her new work on the issue of consent. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm Holly, and here with us today are Dan... Hi. ...and Richard. Hi. Renee, do you want to tell us a little bit about your work? Sure. Consent is hugely important. A whole range of activities, entering someone's home, using their property, disclosing their personal information, things that would ordinarily be rights violations, can be made not just permissible, but morally valuable ways of interacting with them if they consent. They become dinner parties, or important parts of friendships and relationships. Since it has such a big effect on what we're morally permitted to do, it's really important to figure out what consent is. But here we run into difficulties. On the one hand, since consenting changes your rights, it seems like something you have to decide to do, and it seems to involve certain facts about your mental states. But on the other hand, since whether someone consents changes what you're permitted to do, it's pretty important that you be able to tell whether someone has consented. But you can't read minds. So if whether they consent can't be read off their communicative behavior alone, you won't be able to tell if they consent. What I argue is that the communicative function is essential to consent. It's not secondary. Consent exists as a way for people to let each other know that certain interactions that would normally be rights violations are okay, are morally permissible. So if we end up with a theory of consent that doesn't enable agents to coordinate like this, then our theory isn't really a theory of consent. In a nutshell, what I'm arguing is that in order to preserve the communicative function of consent, it can't require mind reading. You have to be able to tell from what someone says and does whether they consent. Now, obviously, that opens up some space for accidentally or unintentionally consenting. So we have to be very, very careful in setting up what counts as communicating consent. And I have a more specific proposal for how to do that. But this is going to turn out to be worth it, because by taking out the mind-reading aspect, we can remove the guesswork, enabling agents to make fewer errors about when someone has actually consented to something. Another benefit is that it helps us distinguish two very importantly different kinds of error that are often unfortunately run together. What I call reasonable errors, where someone unintentionally but responsibly communicated that they consented, and rational errors, where someone thought, for other reasons, that there was consent when there wasn't. In the second sort of case, the mistake might be blameless, but it still violates someone's rights, and we should recognize and compensate them for the wrong that they suffered, even if we don't blame the person who made the mistake. Well, that sounds like a terrific project, Renee. Um, why don't we go and find out what actual members of universities, students, 
think about this themselves. Hey guys, sorry to interrupt. Hi. Have we got a couple of minutes? For what? Well, we're making a podcast on the ethics of consent. Oh, and we're okay. gathering, you know, we're gathering like the view on the street, right? Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah, so, um, I mean, I'll ask you first. Sure. Um, so, you know, how do you know when someone's given their consent to, you know, being kissed or being touched? How, uh, how do you know that? Um, wow, that's a <laughs> <laughs> full-on question. Um, well, sometimes it is, like, explicit. For example, if you're, you know, about to have sex, like, is this okay? And, like, yeah, it's okay. Um... I feel like there's also sometimes implicit communication. For example, I mean, if it's your girlfriend or whatever, it's sort of like, yeah, you know when it's okay and when it's not, that sort of thing. And I mean, one of the reasons this is a bit of a minefield is, you mm -hmm. know, sexual encounters tend to sort of escalate yeah. and, and sometimes people want to withdraw consent. Yep. How does that, what, 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 how do you feel about that kind of complication? Um, it's not really a complication. Like, if consent is withdrawn, then there's no longer consent, so it's sort of the end of the line as far as that goes. We're just um, asking, like, how do you know when someone has, like, uh, consented to, um, when it's appropriate to kiss someone, when they've consented for you to do that? Uh, that's a tough question. Um, well, when you, can, when you can see it in their soul, that's, that's, that's when it's... That's, it's a philosophy podcast. When, when it's like, when it's... First of all, communicate. That's what I'd say. Ask. Like, don't assume, never assume because you get in trouble. So what kind of signals can people send to say no? Well, if they're, like, trying to turn it... Like, they're clearly not... Or, like, trying to push away. They want to get out of there. Yeah. Some people can't read it, though. It's kind of scary. It's tricky. I mean, I'd like to say that I've, I've, I've always known when it's been consensual, you know? I've never, never, never been uncomfortable, which is good. And how do people withdraw their consent? Uh, oh, like mid? I don't know. How would, I've never experienced that, so I, I couldn't really tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> like withdrawn consent. Like, nope, we're done here. See you later. <laughs> I mean, so, so what if someone wants to withdraw consent but like doesn't say, explicitly say no? That there are situations like that. Hmm. Or, that's again a very tricky situation. Think, yeah, just, if you're if you think it's an uncomfortable situation, then back off. Like. Just, just communication is really key. Yeah. So I think both the uh, the last guy that, that we talked to and you, Renee, think that this uh, kind of internal mental state view of consent, or, or the, the guy said, when you see it in their soul, is a kind of silly view. He thought it was so such a silly view that he was joking about it and everyone laughed about it. And I think you don't like it either. But I mean, it can seem quite attractive, right? Because it's only when someone has actually performed the act of consenting when they want something to happen they've really consented. So why is that? Why isn't that right? Why, why do we need a story about communication and conventions rather than just someone in fact wanting something? Uh, so that's a great question, and I think it is very, very natural to think that uh, consent. Obviously, in all of the good cases, when you consent to something, you do that intentionally. You make it the case that it's not a rights violation for someone to engage in that behavior with you, but. What's really important about the consent story is that you change somebody else's moral permissions in consenting. And that's got to be something that they're able to be aware of. So there is an important element of communication that has to be part of consent. And what one of the uh, people that you talked to mentioned, sort of in the background of that same clip, was well, how do you change consent? How do you withdraw consent? Uh, one of the people said, well, you know, you change your mind. And I think that's a dangerous view if it comes apart from communication. 
particularly because you will have given consented to start with. And then if all you do is change your mind and none of your behavior or your speech or anything traceable by the other party changes, then we've got a bad picture for how individuals are supposed to negotiate their rights with each other. Because now someone um, who had been engaged in something with your permission, now they no longer have your permission, but they have no way of knowing that. It seems like that's a bad moral story. So the reason why convention and communication comes into it is that since consent is a way of navigating uh, close contact rights, it's got to be communicative. Yeah, that, that does seem right, but uh, as people emphasized, it is pretty difficult. And the, and the reason all this is difficult is because conventions and norms, they evolve over time in a kind of unpredictable way, and precisely what they require of us is, is often not written down, and we've got to work hard to figure out what what the requirements are, what, what the norms say. Um, and, you know, the, the irony is that no-one wants to admit they're bad at this. But that, the stakes are high. That's why people don't feel uncomfortable. But we're not, we can't expect people to be perfect at this, right? Well, that's absolutely right. Uh, so when the stakes are high, I, I think it's important to note that the stakes aren't always high every time the consent is involved. So sometimes the, what I'm consenting to is just somebody's having a sip of my coffee. That's not especially high stakes. For sex, of course the stakes are high. That's a very personal, very big moral uh, interaction. And there, I think, the fact that the stakes are so high changes what kinds of conventions, what sorts of norms can do the work of communicating consent. So there's an important difference between sort of social signals that we use as evidence about what someone might consent to and social signals that communicate consent. So I guess there's something uh, interesting to say here which ties back to what uh, Kipnis was trying to talk about in her book. Um, so she was talking about women being socialised to be passive and the way that this can sort of change what they really consent to and what they communicate, right? Um, I've been in a situation once, uh, and I have to say, I'm a pretty confident person who communicates fairly clearly, um, yet I've been in a situation with a person where it was, you know, third date or so, looking like if it went well, we would probably sleep together. Um, and it ended up going to a point where uh, I verbally communicated that I wasn't into it and didn't want to have sex, um, and yet we ended up having sex. To me, that felt non-consensual, and I was really angry about it afterwards, um, and angry at myself, actually, for going along with it <laughs> and confused about why I went along with it when I didn't want to and when I said I didn't want to. Um, but actually, for them, when we talked about it afterwards, they were super confused, and they say, said they had no idea. Um, and what they thought was that I signaled something different physically than I signaled verbally. So I guess, I mean, there could be mixed signals and people can have motivated reasons to interpret your communications in one way, the way that suits them, rather than another. Yeah, and I, th I think um, one of the things that that brings out is that for high-stakes communication cases, it's really, really important to double-check and to take a weak, mixed signal as a reason to get stronger evidence that you're actually okay with it. That was another thing that, that one of the people you asked brought up was, you know, never assume, always ask. And that seems like a really good rule of thumb. Um, so one of the things that I get into in more detail in my work is to say, uh, for consent, it's uh, the reason why consent has to be communicative is that we've got an obligation to not put somebody else in a position where it's indistinguishable to them whether we're permitting them to act in a way or not. But the flip side of that is that they've got an obligation to be very attentive to evidence that we're giving them. And so if they're not in a position where it's actually indistinguishable, if they're in a position where, well, they've got mixed evidence, um, well, then they should look for more evidence or ask you directly. 
And I, I take it that in practices like victim blaming, what we're doing is we're put the, putting the onus on the signaller to make sure the communication happens, less and, and not, on, not on the person receiving the signal or not receiving it, and who might engage in a rights violation if they do something non-consensual. And, and so we're going... We're going, we need to go in the opposite direction, is, is what you're suggesting. Yeah, well, with victim blaming, I think there's actually something uh, really, really tragic happening at the level of social dialogue, because what usually happens in victim blaming uh, is that some error has happened, and in the process of defending why it was a, a rational error for the person to have made, why we shouldn't blame the perpetrator of the error, we start raising all of the, the things that they were responding to, the evidence of why they could expect that there would be consent present in the situation, and then infer from the fact that we can't blame the person who made the error that there must not have been a wrong involved. And I think that is a step that happens far too quickly. We need to pull them apart. It can be the case that someone is blameless for an error that they made, but if it wasn't an error made in response to someone communicating content when they didn't mean to, uh, consent when they didn't mean to, if it was for some other evidence, then what we've got is a situation where someone's rights have been violated and they need to be apologized to and compensated for that wrong. But it might be the case that the perpetrator is blameless. They had really good reasons for making the mistake that they did. It's just that we need to not lose, fact that, lose sight of the fact that it was a mistake. I just want to pull, pull you back to um, your view and, and, and whether your view isn't more conducive to victim blaming than other views. So, I mean, it seems like uh, if your view of consent, if the view of consent is you only consent when you, in fact, like you intentionally want something, then you've always got to look for more evidence, right? You should, because that's quite hard to know. So in the high stakes cases, it's natural to say, oh, well, they don't really know that they've consented because, I mean, it's natural. Whereas on your view, it seems like they can, someone can be sending a signal um, and you can have good reason to believe that they've signaled consent, like in the case Holly's talking about, even though they haven't in fact consented. We don't want to say they've in fact consented. So, so isn't, isn't your view worse on the, on the, on the, on the, in terms of victim blaming than alternative views? So I think it certainly looks that way on the surface, but I think it actually turns out to be better than the alternative. And the reason for that is that uh, when you're inside of a view where you never know whether someone consented, you just have to do your best on your evidence to guess. Uh, what you end up guiding agents to do is do their best to be blameless when they violate someone's rights, because they're going to, rather than guiding them to not violate people's rights. And I think that that's a really big and important difference. So on my account, you get guidance to not violate people's rights, and you get it at the cost of some unintentional consent. What that means is that we've got to be really careful in, in filling out my account at uh, picking what behaviors are going to communicate consent and what we take to be signals of consent as opposed to signals that you might in the future consent. So evidence for thinking that you'll give consent versus evidence for the fact that you are now consenting. I think in the case that Holly brought up, uh, there was at best mixed evidence. So even on, on, on my account, there's, it's a no-go. Uh, but also generally receptive behavior in the presence of a verbal no is sometimes read as evidence that someone might later agree. But it's going to be pretty implausible that it is a way of directly communicating that you now consent. Can you tell us a bit more about the communication or the signaling? Um, so am I right in thinking that these are tied to the specific norms of a particular society or community? Yeah, yeah. So uh, on my view, something communicates consent only if it's a behavior that everyone in the relevant community knows is a way of communicating consent and that everyone could easily avoid. So it's pretty costless for them to avoid doing it. So an example of that would be something like uh, if you the speech act, uh, it's fine if you borrow my car, the keys are on the hook by the door. 
is something that in our community everybody knows indicates a permission to borrow my car to the addressee. And it's also really easy for me to avoid making that speech. It's very basically costless. So it's the kind, that's the sort of signal that I'd be talking about. That's super interesting. Um, I, I mean, I guess that raises one question, which would be, what should we think about these signals in a community that just has shitty norms? Um, so what if we're in a society that's really misogynistic and it has norms? Uh, I, I mean, one example would be something like, um, if you wear a short skirt, you somehow signal or communicate your willingness to be catcalled or harassed in the street. Um, what do we say about a case like that? In the current case, you mean? It was just, yeah, the current people think it's the current case. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, very plausibly, uh, we are in such a society. Yeah, so uh, on my view, part of what makes a signal a signal of consent is that we can ground a reasonable obligation of people who don't want to consent to avoid that behavior. And the, the, the thing that makes that reasonable is the value of having a way of indicating consent through that behavior. So uh, we've got, you know, Signing a contract is an indicator of consent. Why? Well, because we've got a lot of value riding on being able to indicate our consent that way to whatever it is we're trying to sign a contract for. And I think in the case of catcalling, it's really questionable whether there's something of value that women are trying to consent to. Uh, so I'm not sure exactly what the value of being catcalled <laughs> could be to the woman being catcalled. It doesn't, it doesn't tend to be in her interest. But even if it were, there would only be a moral obligation to avoid dressing attractively if the value of being able to consent implicitly to catcalling outweighed the cost of avoiding dressing attractively, because then right. you could ground the reasonable obligation. But I think that calculus is going to go the other way. And if the demand's not reasonable, then it just can't be a signal of communicating consent. Right. Mm. This is Holly. I'm here with Aurelia St. Clair, and we're going to leave the last word with her. Thank you. Um, recently, I noticed on my social media, I saw this campaign for uh, beer cans and ciders with social slogans on them, one of them being, consent can't come after you do. And it just makes me wonder, what kind of world do we live in where we have beer cans telling people what to do in terms of consent instead of the people they're trying to sleep with? <laughs> it's depressing. Um, it is, it is. You've been listening to Dialogues. I'm Richard Rowland from the Australian Catholic University. I'm Holly Lawford-Smith from the University of Melbourne. I'm Dan Halliday from the University of Melbourne. I'm Renee Bollinger from the Australian National University. And Dialogues is funded by the University of Melbourne.